Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town of Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greetings might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfil his promises to her. Let's pray. Specifically, 
thank you, Lord, that you're here with us, that you love us, you're always wanting to speak to us. And Lord, would you just turn our hearts to you now as, uh, as we do this time. Amen. Amen. So, quick synopsis. Um, this is an interesting passage. I, I wonder if actually any of you have, have heard of talks on it before. It only occurs in Luke, this um, story of Mary and Elizabeth, um, their relatives. Angel Gabriel is doing quite a lot in this family. Um, busy, busy, busy angel. Um, bear in mind, nothing's happened for 400 years. And then, all of a sudden, angels are cropping up. Um, and cropping up in all these different aspects of this one extended family. Um, so he appears first to Zechariah, who's a priest, um, and says, um, and Zechariah, who uh, thinks he's too old and his wife is too old to have children, and, and Gabriel says to him, you'll have a child, and Zechariah says, well, I'm not so sure about that. The angel says, right, you're going to be playing charades for the next six months, then nine months even. Uh, then he appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a child. She says, hold on, I'm too young. Um, and yet, believes. Uh, and then Mary and Elizabeth go to spend um, their pregnancy together, which is a lovely idea. Maybe, maybe something that should be tried out. Um, and they spend um, their pregnancy together. And it's a wonderful story. Um, uh, but I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that this is just a passage about pregnancy um, and falling pregnant babies. That happens to be the subject and the content, but this passage is really about how we interact with a majestic and holy God, and specifically how we react to him when he calls us to have faith. It's not purely about babies. Uh, now, you've probably sat through enough of Tim and Lydia's sermons to know that all good sermons have three points. Uh, I'm going to quickly reference, um, kind of almost in passing, uh, first two observations about the passage, but I really want to focus um, on the third. So the first, there is a beautiful friendship here between Mary and Elizabeth. Um, let's have a look at those last six verses. I just want you to picture the scene where Elizabeth, who has been waiting her entire adult life to fall pregnant, even goes as far to where she says she'd been feeling disgrace about this her entire adult life. And she's fallen pregnant miraculously. Um, and she's on the cusp of telling her younger cousin this incredible news and like, how exciting this thing that I've been dealing with these disappointments my entire life and I'm kind of pregnant. Uh, and there's Mary, uh, who is too young. In fact, she's, um, she's a virgin, so she can't get forward pregnant. Uh, and as she's delivering the news, Mary responds, Oh, lovely, you got John, that's cool. I got Jesus. And yet there's no room for thunder to be stolen. There's no opportunity and there's no hint of jealousy. There's nothing like that at all. The example that we get from Elizabeth is just pure, unbridled joy and excitement. Even the kind of being able to share in further excitement than what she's already feeling for herself, she's able to show that excitement to her younger cousin. We, we had a kind of slight taste of that on Christmas Day last year uh, when we were waiting to tell our, our families that we were pregnant and we were 
waiting for me and sister and her husband to come join us on Christmas Day before we told everyone. Uh, and as they arrived, they, uh, they quickly kind of ushered us into the corner of the kitchen and said, We're pregnant! Um, uh, and it was quite an interesting 10 seconds before we could tell them that we were also pregnant. But um, how amazing this depiction of true, godly, designed friendship, where there's no hint of the opportunity for comparison um, to steal any of the joy in the moment. What an amazing example from Elizabeth. Secondly, um, the second kind of point in passing is an incredible uh, foundation of partnering in ministry. So for verse 41, we see John leaps in the womb. What an amazing kind of idea, a baby in the womb leaping. Um, what a feeling. But how amazing to know that 30 years on, these two as yet unborn babies will be partnering in the most effective, most powerful ministry this world has ever seen. With John going on to baptize Jesus and even die for Jesus' cause. How amazing that they were partnering in that ministry together, even in the womb. And I think that is a beautiful and um, incredible thing. I'm so lucky here to um, get some deeds to have a friend who I've known my entire life that we learn to walk together and we're able to enjoy and challenge and encourage and stretch each other in the ministry that we do together here at Cities and all different kind of things, whether it's uh, pastoral stuff or whether it's just like basic stuff, administrative stuff. How fun that I can do that with someone who I've known my entire life. But the challenge that I want to give to parents um, in the room is prioritize those relationships. Spend time with other Christian families. Pour into your kids' Christian friends. Prioritize kids' church, youth clubs, holiday camps. These friendships are so, so vital um, for your children in the years to come. So there's the first of two points in passing. One, an amazing depiction of friendship where there is no opportunity or no opportunity given for comparison to steal joy. And secondly, there's an amazing foundation of partnering with ministry and really just a kind of side point there for, for parents just to prioritise those, those relationships. They're so, so vital and they have been to me. But thirdly, this is what I want to focus on. There's something really troubling in this passage. Um, there are similar stories, Mary and Zechariah, uh, sorry, Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary, very similar stories of divine intervention from one is too old, the other is too young. And both react with this a seemingly similar question, how can this be? So why does God, or Gabriel in God's um, mandate, why does he react in such vastly different ways? Verse 20, closing the lips of Zechariah, a man who was previously described as righteous and blameless. Blameless even. And yet he's left playing charades for the next nine months, having to try and act out what he's really trying to say because the angel has closed his lips. And yet he chooses to bless Mary in her question. In verse 35, he says, Blessed are you. Both of them seem on the surface like perfectly reasonable questions. How can this be? I'm too old. How can this be? I'm too young. Right? Why, why the difference? Why does, what does God see here? that we don't. And the point is that he can see straight through the question. He sees straight through 
the seemingly kind of similar question all the way through to the heart of the person asking and the posture of that heart. You know the feeling when you're asking a question and you're asking it to be difficult. You know the feeling where on the surface it's a perfectly obvious question and it sounds exactly the same as someone else asking it not trying to be difficult. But God can see straight through what we cannot see. He's not arbitrary or capricious, ruling over us with a mean spirit. He's measured and he's understanding. And that should really be a comforting thought to us. But also pretty awe-inspiring that we cannot, there is literally no opportunity to pretend to God. We cannot pull the wool over his eyes. So why the difference in response? And here's my container that I want to share with us. I feel God is wanting to draw out for us. Mary asks with wonder. Zechariah asks with skepticism. Mary, in verse 34, come and look at it with me. How will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be since I am a virgin? Verses, verse 18, look at it across the other side of the page. Zechariah said, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. But firstly, what a fantastically creative way of getting around saying that your wife is old. <laughs> Why are the old Zechariah? You've been burnt by that one before. But secondly, in itself, it's not an unreasonable question. The biology didn't fit in both cases. Moreover, if he was a righteous and blameless man, what chance do we have of asking questions of God? He says, how can I be sure of this? We know from Hebrews 11, that classic definition of faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. How can we be sure of what we do not see? And where do we draw the line between asking a perfectly logical and realistic question and choosing to have faith in what we cannot see? And I think what God is wanting to say to us this morning is the key is to examine the posture of our hearts when we respond to the potential, just the potential, there may even just be a chance that God may be asking us to have faith in a situation. Uh, this was made clear to me uh, in this very room just over a year ago. Uh, me and I had the misfortune of losing a baby to a miscarriage last year. Um, and I don't bring this story up flippantly. I know that there will be plenty of people in this room uh, who will have experienced that pain. And I appreciate it's not usual Sunday morning topic of conversation. But it's an important part of our faith journey, especially in how God asks us to respond. It's easily the most painful thing we've either experienced. And we were approaching the day uh, when the baby we lost was due to have been born. And we knew that was meant to be the 4th of December, 2018. And frankly, we were dreading it, especially after many months of trying and nothing happening. And we were here the Sunday before that day, uh, and it was during worship that Meeks came over and tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think God is speaking to us and asking us to have faith and speak out that we'll be pregnant again on the 4th of December. I have to admit, this is the point where I responded like a total Zechariah. I said something along the lines of, okay, 
well, let's not be silly, let's not get our hopes up too much. And it seemed at the time like the common sense thing to do. It was my attempt to protect us. But really, what I was doing was not giving God the space to operate by bypassing the need for faith. Means, on the other hand, immediately had faith to speak out, opening up the space not just for further potential pain and disappointment, um, but also giving God the opportunity to act. Lo and behold, that morning of the 4th of December 2018, we found out we were pregnant again. Uh, and what should have been a, morning, uh, a day of mourning was turned into one of total and unbridled, unexpected joy, and here is home team. So what happened there? Because again, I don't want us to leave thinking this morning that this passage uh, and this sermon is all about babies and falling pregnant. This is the, the subject that God chooses, but this is about how we interact with the majestic and holy God. Could this be an example of John Wesley's belief that God does nothing except in response to believing prayer? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure, to be honest, where I land theologically on that. But as ever, C.S. Lewis comes to the rescue, uh, and he has so many of the answers. I would just call all of us to, to, to read some more of C.S. Lewis. He says, and I read this slowly because it's, it's kind of tricky to pick up, but I really want us to get this. God instituted prayer in order to lend to his creatures, us, the dignity of causality, or, or rather, another idiot's kind of phrase, the dignity of inclusion. But not only prayer, whenever we act at all, he lends us that dignity. It's not really stranger nor less strange that my prayers should affect the course of events than that my other actions should do so. They have not advised or changed God's mind. That is his overall purpose. But that purpose will be realised in different ways according to the actions including the prayers of us, his creatures. Do we see that? The, the role that we have to play in how we respond in prayer, and not even prayer, our words, our actions. Not that we change God's mind or his overall purpose, but that purpose will be realised in different ways according to the actions and the prayers of his creatures. And that's a challenge, especially for those of us who feel God may be saying to us and speaking to us about prior disappointment. This is not easy stuff. So here's the challenge that I think God has for us. It's good to ask questions of God. This passage isn't an isolated example of someone responding to God with a question. And we should continue to ask difficult questions of God and one another. Frankly, there's nothing that we can throw at God that he hasn't already heard from someone much brighter than us. Like, think of it, Einstein was able to have a faith. I'm pretty sure he was able to work that out with God. God will be able to work that out with us. How comforting even to know that someone as blameless and righteous as Zechariah, he got it wrong. But our challenge is to check the posture of our hearts. When, God, when we feel even the inkling that God is speaking to us, do we lean in towards faith? Or do we lean towards skepticism and cynicism? What is our instinct? 
they close now. But many of us here and in our church are blessed with the gift of faith and find that trust in these kind of difficult situations comes naturally. And we need you. We need those with the gift of faith. And it is a gift. We need you to lead us in how we pray as a community and help us to respond in difficult situations. We need you. Many of us in this church are also blessed with the gift of discernment. And this is for one that often people who feel like, and I've heard so many people say to me, oh, I just feel like I'm too simple. Maybe actually God has given you the gift of discernment and the ability to see through the waffle or even, frankly, a lie. We need you too. You are the teachers, the truth seekers, and we need you to lead us in how we ask the right questions rather than leading us in scepticism or cynicism. Zechariah's example shows us that we can easily be shown to be doing all the right stuff, but the heart is turned away. Can I pray for us and then I'll hand back to you, Lydia? Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.